As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. This, to me, is the question. How much do we see shares absolutely pummeled? if anything, is disappointing. There's only one person to answer that question. Walgreens analyst Stuart Kaiser, U.S. <laughs> equity trading strategy head at Citigroup. Stuart, I know you don't talk about individual stocks, but this is just a microcosm of the earnings battle over the next six weeks. Yeah, yeah. I think, look, earnings have been obviously a very pleasant surprise or a very painful surprise if you've been bearish on a year-to-date basis. You know, I, I would agree with you. The, the, the bar is pretty high going into earnings uh, this quarter, particularly in the tech space. Um, so that's going to be, I think, a very, very strong test. We have seen investors kind of gravitating towards stocks that have strong EPS momentum. Uh, this kind of happened ahead of last earnings season as well. So, you know, when the bar is high, you, you try to go with the stocks. I think you feel like you can rely on from an earnings perspective. What do your securities analysts say at Citigroup? They've got this, I get all the feed from Citigroup for some reason. And, you know, Jane <laughs> Frazier, she's long on, you know, IBM, I hear about it first. But the bottom line is, what do the troops say about this pending season? Look, I, I think it's I think it's going to be a mixed bag. And I think the question is, you know, where do you put the most focus? You know, to me, a lot of you know, to continue the Walgreens conversation, the it's it's the services side of the economy and it's the labor market and consumer spending that that are the things I think you need to pay most most close attention to going to the second half of the the year. I'm looking right now at Walgreens shares down 7.4% in pre-market trading on the heels of this disappointment. It wasn't a severe disappointment, but it was a disappointment. What does that say about the potential sell-off if there is any crack in any of the big tech names, given where valuations are, given where expectations are, and given how lofty some of these uh, stock prices really are right now. Yeah, it's going to be a minefield, I think, you know, for tech earnings. And and the tough part, too, is you look at that week between July 24th and, and July 31st, you get the FOMC, and that's when you get, you know, large cap earnings. So, you know, that last week in July, I think, is going to be very busy for you all <laughs> and obviously very busy for us. And yeah, to your point, I think the, the, the bar is very high here for a lot of those stocks, particularly if you look back to last quarter, you know, a stock like Microsoft, a stock like NVIDIA, which were considered consensus longs, still managed right. to rise considerably <clears throat> on earnings. And, and I think right. they now face the challenge of backing that up. Headline out right now, Delta Airlines thanks the Abramowitz fan for profit-making travel in July. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Are you just basically it just continues. tweaking I mean, my... 
Walgreens tanking as we go and Delta out with a complete redo. Lisa, why don't you visit it here? Free cash flow was greater than $2 billion. They popped FCF up to $3 billion. I believe that's a 50% lift on free cash flow. Well, this has been the perennial story, right, that people keep traveling, that the distortions post-pandemic have continued. Given some of these post-pandemic distortions, and we were talking before uh, we went on about how people do keep on spending, and maybe they were conditioned by remaining cooped up and feeling like they have to seize life at the horns or whatever kind of psychological rationale you want to put on it. But Stuart, how does that color your view of whether you're more optimistic or more pessimistic once we get the reality of these earnings? Look, I think it's I think it's earnings and to your point is consumer spending employment. And, you know, if we're going to have a recession in the second half of the year, it's going to have to come from the consumer side of the market. Right. So that's why there's so much focus on the labor market. Um, I think going into earnings. Yeah, you know, there's a high bar for tech, mostly because tech has been leadership of the market. And I think there's a higher, you know, a high bar, a lot of focus on, on consumer companies just to see if the spending is following through. Are they continuing to able be able to pass through inflation or are they starting to have to discount, you know, to get to get people in the door. So I think, you know, those are the two areas we'll probably be focused on the most for earnings coming up is can tech hit the bar and can, what signal are we getting on consumer spend? What does it mean that tech is uh, that tech earnings is a minefield, that that whole period is a minefield at a time when you've been pretty optimistic about where the market's heading? Yeah, look, I, the, the tech, the trick tech trade is obviously not, as we say, as clean as it was, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of the year. And, you know, I think that the bottom line here is if you look at uh, sales, revisions, if you look at EBITDA revisions, they've been, you know, higher for tech and even higher in the AI space. So that kind of sets your bar, you know, a little bit higher for expectations. And, you know, what we've seen the last I would say one to two months is, is long only investors in particular starting to have some fatigue in terms of tech buying. We're starting to see some outflows from the space. So you put those two things together, you have a high bar and, and what looks like some fatigue um, on the institutional side. And, and that just, to your point, sets it up that you need to you need to deliver results here to kind of justify your performance on a year-to-date basis. I want you to talk to market timers right now. You have been brilliant, Balin, the rest at Citigroup, about saying you got to be in the game to win. Talk about market timing right now, the efficacy of being hyper-cautious versus the optimism I hear from Citigroup. Yeah, look, I, I think even our optimism is starting to get a little bit tired, to, you know, to be completely honest with you. You know, partly it's price action and partly it's one of the reasons we were kind of more bullish coming into the year was so much stock had been sold last year. And we thought that that those positions kind of needed to be rebuilt, and just the data we're seeing on flows suggests that data, the, those positions have largely been rebuilt. Call it your seventy-five percent of the way, you know, along that path. So from our perspective, it, it does kind of impact risk reward a little bit. So look, you know, we are still relatively positive. You know, gun to our head, we'd say up, up <clears> rather than down um, at, at this point. But but the risk reward is, is definitely. But that's less, the nature of a bull market. I mean, I mean, so, I'm sorry, we're not in the first leg off the mat. Bramo was wicked gloomy the third week of October last year. And guess what? We all got off the mat and went. It's not supposed to be like that now, right? No, it, it's not. I mean, for, for a number of reasons. One is you've had a tremendously positive economic data surprise to start the year. That's flowed through to earnings expectations as well. I think that's that's helped lift the market. But look, you get above forty four hundred, um, you know, and and it looks like institutional investors at least have started to 
you know, just sort of call pause a little bit in, in terms of their inflows into the market. So that, that means one of two things. Either I think you need to take recession risk out of the system, which would be your next leg higher, or you're going to need, you know, retail to continue to sponsor this market to the upside. Are you one of those people who says if there is a sell-off in tech, it's a buyable dip? That's what I keep hearing from everyone. <laughs> um, look, I think if there's a sell-off in tech, I think that means markets are down in general. You're not going to get tech down with markets up, right? Um, so like every dip is a buyable dip, I guess. But, you know, from our perspective, I think if you get a pullback here, I agree with you. I think there are a lot of people waiting to get into the market, you know, a bit lower, which probably mean like right now we're in the pain trade to the upside. Um, you know, people didn't want to chase it. I think what you'll probably have is people buy a little too quickly on the way down and then and then kind of have to average themselves in. The floor is clearly higher than it was to start the year. I, again, yeah, I agree with you. I do think you'll see, I don't want to call it value picking, but you'll definitely see some people who'd be happy to, to buy the market, <clears throat> call it 5 to 10% lower here, which, you know, as you know, limits the downside. I, right? I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if you knew this. This is brilliant, Stuart. Thank you so much. But Bramo's got the East Bay 44 from Grand Banks on delivery. Later this summer, gorgeous with a light blue. And she's I don't even named, understand she's, what he's saying. She's named it Buyable Dip. This <laughs> <laughs> is great. It's a picnic boat for Bramo to have a picnic. Oh, boat. It's like the Hinkley one, but actually, I think it has more character than the Hinkley picnic boat. I think I got lost yeah. in the uh, paddle, the blow up paddle board instead. <laughs> that's, that's sort of my speed. But the, you know, the carry Hinkley on. was great. I love the side thrusters, but I'm sorry, the East Bay's side better. And thrusters. you know, you might. When was the last time you were on a boat? <laughs> I mean, come on. When was, was the last a, time? My boat was called the USS Dramamine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sounds you. more like that it. Well. <laughs> Stuart Kaiser, just brilliant. Come back. Bring Jeff Yu with you from BNY Mellon. <laughs> Do it every day. Kaiser and you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It is without question the hallmark research analysis of the year. You could hear the silence in Washington as the International Monetary Fund, led by the economics of Gita Gopinath, looked out to 2028 and saw a growth trajectory that took us back decades to 1990. It was an extraordinary call on tepid economic growth. We need an update. We go to Portugal and Centro, the meetings of the European Central Bank. Francine Lacroix of The Pulse in conversation with Dr. Gopinath. Francine, good morning. Good morning, Tom. I am delighted to be joined by Gita Gopinath, of course, of the IMF, who yesterday also really opened the forum here in Centrum with a very powerful speech linking fiscal policy and monetary policy and really reminding everyone that they had to work in tandem. So, Gita, thank you so much for joining us. When you look at the fight against inflation, there's now a lot of talk about recession, you know, the fact that core inflation is still high, but headline inflation is coming down. What does a policy mistake from central banks now look like? First of all, it's a pleasure to join you, Francine. 
what, what we're experiencing is that inflation is taking a long time to get back to its target. And yes, headline is coming down significantly, but core inflation, while it has eased, is still persistently high. So in this environment, our advice is that central banks will need to stay the course. In the case of the ECB, that will mean that some more continued tightening, and then to stay on hold to make sure that you're confident that inflation is coming back durably down. And that, that could come along with more weakness in labor markets that we've seen so far, and more weakness in the economy uh, in general. But that's what is needed to bring inflation down. Do, do you worry about the markets? And I know you don't look at the markets day in, day out, but there seems to be a bias in the markets that actually inflation is coming down and that central banks will be you know, ready to not hike as much as maybe you know, they will. So is there a danger that the market is mispricing something that will then create an event? When the markets have been off since the start of this year, I mean, if you look at their expectations of the policy rate path in some countries, especially the US, they were expecting three rate cuts this year for US Fed policy. And they have adjusted. They've come back now to recognizing that no, we are there here for longer than was expected. So I think markets have been very optimistic, and I suspect they're still somewhat optimistic about uh, the path for interest rates. What, what do they most misunderstand? Is it the fact that interest rates have to remain higher for longer, which Christine Lagarde actually laid out beautifully in her speech, or that they have to rise higher than expected? I think it's the how long they're going to stay at that. I think that's the part where there is a disconnect between the markets and what central banks are signaling. And so far, it's the markets that have had to correct to central bank parts as opposed to other way around. So I still think that they're off a bit on the duration for which they'll have to keep rates high. What's the path forward for growth? Should we worry about once we get inflation in control? We are seeing growth weakening. We are seeing slowing activity at this point. We need to bring inflation down to have sustainable growth, which is why it's super important to do this. This time around, since it's not just a demand phenomenon, we've had supply disruptions correct themselves. We've had energy prices come down. I think both those factors are helping bring inflation down without needing too much of a uh, hit to the economy. But I think we have to wait and see. We're only just seeing the effects of monetary policy work through the system now, and we could see much more slowing. But is that why, I mean, why is core inflation so stubbornly high? No one can quite figure it out, which is why it keeps on surprising us to the upside. It's a big part of the conversation we're having at Sintra, which is, is it the fact that monetary policy transmission is now weaker than it used to be, or is it the fact that you haven't raised interest rates by enough? I think this is, these are questions that are coming up. We have a situation where it has been the case that household balance sheets, corporate balance sheets have been strong, which has helped hold up resilience. Labor markets are tight. People believe that they will have a job and they can keep a job. Wages are going up. And services pending tends to be much less interest sensitive than when it comes to durable goods, which consumers piled up on already during the peak of the pandemic. So I think all these factors are could be muting the effect of monetary policy transmission. But now, as those effects decline, we could start seeing more of a slowing in activity. I mean, to, to put it simply, a nightmare scenario would be some kind of spiral. So you have wages going up, prices go up, and then you lose control. Are we there yet? I don't think so. I don't, we're not seeing that in, uh, like in the US or in the euro area. We certainly are seeing wage catch up, and that has happened. That's happened in previous cycles, too. We should expect to see that. But we're not seeing wages 
pushing up prices. The concern, of course, is that if it takes so long to bring inflation down, then you might unhinge inflation expectations and then trigger a wage price spiral. This is why President Lagarde spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the persistence of inflation and the reason to stay high for long. So is that why interest rates, you think, have to stay higher for longer? Is it, is it really, I mean, it's to get inflation 2%, but really it's try to break through that spiral that, that could be impossible, actually, almost to get out. If you look at projections for when inflation gets back to target, in the euro area, that's the middle of 2025. That's two years from now. That is a long time. And that's why it is critical that you can't have any further risks to de-anchoring of inflation, because it's two years is a long time to bring inflation back down to target. To make sure it happens, you have to stay the course and keep interest rates high until you see durable signs that core inflation is coming down. Then, of course, you have to be data dependent. I mean, all the world's central bankers are here. It was quite exciting for me to see Jay Powell also walk in in his sneakers. I don't often see him actually in sneakers or face to face. Is a gravitational pull of what the Fed does too heavy to hand for the ECB, but also the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan? The, what the Fed does matters for the whole world, including for other major central banks. But I think this is a time when central bankers are coming together also to understand inflation dynamics better. There are still several questions. There's a lot of uncertainty on the outlook. And Sintra is a good learning experience for all central bankers. How hard is it for monetary policy to counter fiscal policy? And again, because we're seeing inflation rise, that means the cost of living goes up. So it's understandable that politicians want to be there for their citizens. I think. It's perfectly good for governments to want to be there for their vulnerable citizens and to provide targeted support. What is not really good at this point would be to have broad-based support that generates very large fiscal deficits, especially increases in fiscal deficits, and then feeds into inflation. That is a problem. I mean, all the indicators, the fact that we have high inflation now, the fact that debt is high, and we need to build buffers because there are going to be future shocks, all of that point towards fiscal tightening. And that's what we're recommending. When you look at central, the big central bankers around the world, and of course, you know, in dealing with inflation and growth, who do you think has the toughest job? Bank of England? I think at this point, among the major ones, if I put the US, the Euro area, and the Bank of England, I think in the UK, the inflation problem looks more difficult than in the other parts because they have a sub sub supply shock problem that came from the energy prices and they also have the demand side which is very tight labor markets and if you look at wages in fact uh, in England this is where you see the most amount of uh, wage pressures coming in. So how do they get out? Again, there's also huge reliability on mortgages so it's not as easy as you just keep on hiking because the housing market is so sensitive to that. Well, I think firstly, the fact that the Bank of England raised uh, rates by 50 basis points recently in their most recent meeting, I think that's a welcome step. That's a clear signal that they are in the fight to bring inflation down. One of the reasons they've been somewhat cautious is exactly what can happen to mortgages and the housing market. But you know, there's been an increase in the duration of fixed rate mortgages in the UK. So, so you have some attenuation of that effect. And household balance sheets are much stronger than they were in the past. So that should also help. Um, Tom Keane was also talking about, of course, your outlook and, and what we saw uh, just a couple of, of weeks ago by the IMF. Are you more optimistic now about the world economy in 2024 than you were six months ago? We had a projection for the world economy to grow at around 2.8% this year, which was 
you know, low, coming down from 3.4% last year and then going up to around 3%. Our new numbers will be out in July. We don't have it ready at this point. We're getting different data from different countries at this point. But I think the overall story of an economy that's slower this year than it was last year will remain. So how much of the conversation here is also trying to understand some of these, these forecasts going forward and how central banks actually can do a better job in understanding the impact that monetary policy has on future inflation? I think everybody's trying to understand how economic activity is being impacted by the rate increases that have happened so far, because they've been sizable. The expectation was that we would have seen more slowing down already than we've seen so far. So the surprise is on the resilience of economic activity. Now, of course, we don't want to extrapolate and just assume that this resilience is going to continue. So it's a difficult job for central bankers at this point. They have to you know, watch the data very carefully. Uh, but at the same time, they have to show real commitment to bringing inflation down. Gita, thank you so much for joining us. Kikita Gopinath there, of course, of the IMF. I also spotted, Tom, the new uh, central bank governor of the Bank of Japan. I have to say it's like a rock concert for nerds. We were quite excited because it's the yeah. first time I think he's been traveling for an event since he was uh, made governor outside of Japan. Yeah, the invite got lost in the mail. Lisa was looking for it through her mail today. All I can say, Francine, is you and Dr. Gopinath, I can just see you having the Travesiero at Casa Pequita. Uh, in Sintra. Uh, Lisa, this is very important. It's a sweet, eggy almond cream <laughs> dusted with caster sugar on top. I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. Francine, thank you so Francine much. Francine <laughs> Joining us now, someone who's been of immense value to us over the years, Kitschuk is with the Derivative House Societe Generale, uh, their chief foreign exchange strategist. Is is there a clear vision to the Jukes memo kit? I mean, it's the, the, the death of summer. You're going to spend all of July and August in some shack in Spain uh, on the beach. And I just, I just want to know... Is there a Jukes vision of where we're going? Or are you like everybody else waiting to see what happens? Uh, there's a vision, but there's uncertainty about time. I mean, this is an extraordinary cycle. But um, the one thing that I, I you know, was listening to reading Gopinath, you know, sort of get yeah, the Gopinath was sort of saying, you know, we, we're uncertain about the lags. The lags are long and variable. Uh, and everybody's impatient for the lag to play out. It'll play out in its own time because the single most unique feature of this cycle is that we ended up with really easy monetary policy, really easy fiscal policy, and really, really tight labor markets because of a pandemic. And then from there, tightening and getting that out is taking longer than we thought. Well, gosh. But but so I, I, I sit there and think in, in one of the next 26 Thursdays, I'm going to come in one day and I'm going to see a, a weekly jobless claims number that makes my mouth sort of hang open. And I think, wow, here we are. I mean, this cycle is going to end. This plane is going to land. Um, but but we're, we're completely at a loss to try to figure out how long those lags are. And we're nervous that when it does land, will it land as softly as we hope and, and so on and so forth. But I think that vision's super clear. What is, what is terribly difficult is to guess um, how long it takes to play out. One definitive thing that Gita Gopinath said was that she thinks that the UK, your UK, is in the worst spot of all of the central banks in terms of combating inflation. Is this supportive of the pound or negative for the pound because it means higher rates and slower growth? 
Well, right now, markets are more myopically focused on short-term interest rate differentials than I can remember them in, in the foreign exchange market. So right now, the pan's doing well. Um, in the long run, though, if you've got a really lousy growth inflation <coughs> trade-off, which is what we've got, you, you know, you have to get rates up a lot, and then you get a worse economic slowdown, and then you'll get more rate cuts. So um, we are supposed to be taking our pans, and as strong as we can get them, we're supposed to be turning them into something useful like Swedish kroners, so that this time next June, when the sun's shining in Sweden, I'm on a boat outside Stockholm with my feet up and a glass of beer in my hand, having loads of fun at today's exchange rate, because it'll be completely different by then. Um, and, and yeah, each week, I just kind of sell a few more pans. Lisa, you and I got to get our heads examined. Do you see how Jukes talks there about vacation like Pharaoh does? Well, it's I'll like a God-given right. It's like the king descended and said, <laughs> Lord Jukes, Lord Pharaoh, take August off. Well, and I will say, Lord Jukes, Lord Pharaoh, come do that in the U.S. I'm curious from your vantage You're point idiots. as we look for. No, I am supported wholeheartedly. I'm and not, I will join you Ameri on that Swedish boat. Kid, I need to go to Spain for one day. Where do I Fly oh my goodness! So no, absolutely, Kit. When we talk about our travel plans, let's talk about the dollar. Since we're going to go there, how strong is the dollar going to be there versus all these currencies to plan our one-day vacations? And this has sort of been one of the surprising features: is are we entering a reversal period of the dollar weakness of the first half of the year? Or does what we've heard from the ECB, what we've heard from the Bank of England, what we've heard just generally around the world really challenge that and indicate more weakness ahead? I, I think you're going to get more weakness ahead for the dollar over time from here. I mean, it's still very strong and, and it would be um, it would be amazing if it didn't actually weaken at some point. You know, you, we have seen, I think Jeff, you put it, put it very well. You know, we've seen buying of dollars from people who are trading U.S. exceptionalism in AI stocks, for example, uh, who are trading the U.S. economy is not slowing down yet as a theme uh, and, and the market's pricing in, you know, the idea that the Fed hasn't peaked yet in terms of rates and it's pushing a little bit more in there. And there will be some people who will turn around and say that there will never be another U.S. recession because the U.S. economy is right. so wonderful. Um, as those people get themselves fully priced in, which I don't think is terribly far from here, that's as good as the dollar can get from here with the rest of the world recovering. So um, you, you're a bit like me. You know, you have a, a strong currency today. It's not going to be strong forever. Right. Uh, on that basis. Can you frame out the opportunity on the Pacific Rim and particularly with the shock and awe of Yuan? I mean, it is a devaluation of the Chinese Yuan. I'll let you decide where that tip point is, but seven, all eyes on 715. We blow through that to a 723 uh, right now. My eyes are failing me. 7.22 on Yuan. Frame out the opportunity on the Pacific Rim. Um, the, the, well, the, the Chinese opportunity is that the Chinese, the Chinese have a problem reviving their economy. They don't have much inflation. I mean, these are not big moves in percentage terms compared to what we see in lots of other places. So they could go further. There's certainly nothing to, to help it now. I, I worry that China, if it tries to revive its economy, it can't easily go back to the old kind of boost the real estate market yet again. Um, you know, that they'll probably have to make manufactured goods and sell them to the rest of us. Uh, and they'll, they'll welcome a weak currency to help them do that. The real so, so they may get some pain in China, 
um, the pain will then spread to the other people who rely on them. It's, you know, I wouldn't want to be terribly long the Australian dollar today if, if they're trying to sell um, iron ore to, uh, to a Chinese economy that's, that's struggling. Um, I, you know, so, so I think, and, and you can see this year, you know, one of the features of this year, the strongest currencies have been Central Eastern European ones that fought inflation hard and Latin American ones that fought mm-hmm. inflation hard. There are no strong Asian currencies this year. Um, none, you know, none of the top three right. currencies. Are. I think that's what tells you that the market is is kind of getting this to some degree. I quite like selling the other Asian currencies against the yen um, because the yen is going to frustrate me until it starts going up when they make some policy yeah. changes. Mr. Wader could could do the world a big favor by getting on board well, with everybody else today, but that's not going to happen. I need to extend this conversation, but we don't have the time to do it. I, I really want to talk to Kit Jukes, folks, in the coming days from Spain. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The question around the earnings surprise and whether this is going to be something that becomes a pattern is really the main theme I keep hearing from people. Joining us now to discuss, Cameron Dawson, I'm so pleased to say, Chief Investment Officer at New Edge Wealth. Cameron, how much is that on your radar, that earnings may be the catalyst to the downturn, to the caution that so many people have been warning about? Yeah, I think it is the important factor because even though we still see a lot of dire economic forecasts, effectively economists have us starting a recession in just a few days in the third quarter. You don't see that in the earnings forecast. You see a big recovery in the back half of the year and then an even bigger recovery into 2024 and 2025, driven by resilient economy and big margin expansion. So that would be the key source of downside surprise if we don't see those earnings materialize. And we're watching the margins really closely because inflation has been actually very good for margins. It's why we think we got to record margins in 21 and early 2022. So as inflation continues to moderate, pricing power moderates, that could put downward pressure on those margins. You've been cautious for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Are you getting more cautious or less cautious? So we've been cautious in expressing it by remaining invested, but staying in quality and saying that we don't want to be taking big risks on very cyclical, economic sensitive parts of the market at the same time as not wanting to take risks with things that are more speculative, that really require the boost that you get from central banks easing policy to see their stock prices do really well. What's interesting is that we have seen those stocks lead this year. And that's been one of our biggest surprises is that you have seen the Fed continue to remain very hawkish. But at the same time, you've been seeing liquidity sensitive parts of the market lead the charge higher Mm. because there has been a huge divergence of yields and valuations. At New Edge Wealth, how do you respond to people that say, I'm scared stiff, I don't want to participate in the equity market? 
have a long-term perspective and have a plan. Because at the end of the day, we have two things that we need to avoid as financial advisors. We need to keep people from selling at the bottom and buying at the top. This used to drive Peter Lynch. He would lecture on his, the, the giant at Fidelity. Mm-hmm. He actually went in one day. He was so angry. They actually went into Magellan. This is, folks, in the heyday of Fidelity Magellan. And he ordered a survey of who bought at the top and, at the bo- and sold at the bottom. And it was stunning. The percentages were just stunning. On your observation. And one of the things how we navigate this is by focusing on quality through cycles. Those companies that go down less than they went up in the prior up cycle. And what that leads us to do is not necessarily chase big, huge rallies like we've seen in certain pockets of the market this year and take kind of a tortoise versus the hare approach. We'll probably get to the same place at the end of the day. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Carry on. (laughs) We'll probably get to the same place without having the big wild swings of volatility as you chase to the upside and then see big reversals to the downside. So here's, I think, the uh, existential question of the year. Mm -hmm. People are saying it's a recession delayed. Mm. not necessarily deterred completely. You're talking about some of the sectors that did really well this year, even in the face of the rate hikes. That will play out just later. When do you say the models are broken Mm -hmm. and that this is something new, something different at a time when this economy and these markets seem much more resilient to rate hikes than ever before? That's the key point. And I think that this is a function of 10 plus years of quantitative easing that kept long interest rates down. It allowed people to term out their debt and effectively (sighs) doled the power of monetary policy going forward. Because one of the things that you've seen this year is that you're not seeing the impact from higher rates of impact consumers or corporations simply because they were able to term out debt and have very long Mm -hmm. maturities. And so now, as you see rates rise, people kind of shrug simply because there is not that same impact. Cameron, I'd love your thoughts on this, because this is something we were talking about yesterday, that markets basically shrugged this off because it was a number of tail risks that you couldn't really price in. Do you have a renewed thought on that? Our thinking is that unless there is something that keeps Russia from continuing to be able to flood markets with heavily discounted oil, that markets probably will look in the other direction. Because one of the key things that has been bullish for markets is the moderation in oil prices. Part of that is a function of Russia selling so much oil at discounted prices. So if we start to see something that could impact Russia's oil production or their ability to be able to continue to sell, that would be the key upward impact on inflation and thus downward impact on markets. One more question. Where are you on a 60-40 reallocation here? It's mid-year. I got to reallocate. Do you believe in 60-40? We believe in 60-40 plus alternatives because there are still fantastic opportunities outside of traditional asset classes where we see dislocations because of all the turmoil of the past couple of years where we are starting to allocate two things like venture very selectively in private credit. It's a popular place to be, uh, but we are finding great opportunities Mm -hmm. outside of your traditional assets. Carmen Dawson, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. The right person at the right time. That must mean it's a conversation with David Rubenstein. Afsana Beshlas is one of my favorite people in the world. She is prodigious in knowledge of international hydrocarbons. This is exceptionally well-timed. From Rock Creek, Afsana Loss with David Rubstein. Look for that tonight at 9 p.m. An important conversation, and in hindsight, even more important given the uproar that we see in Russia.
Belarus and Ukraine. He is with the Carlisle Group. David Rubenstein joins us this morning. Uh, David, I literally got goosebumps. She is just the perfect person to talk to. Tell us what Ms. Beshloff brings to the table. For those who don't know, Afsana Beshloff is an immigrant from Iran. Uh, she was educated at Oxford. She was the treasurer and chief investment officer of the World Bank and subsequently started her own firm called Rock Creek, which is now uh, probably the largest woman-owned investment firm in the United States, certainly the largest woman-owned firm by a woman who's an immigrant, uh, managing about $17 billion. Afsana is involved in a lot of uh, philanthropic activities as well on the board of the Council on Foreign Relations, Rockefeller Foundation, chairman of the PBS board and so forth, uh, PBS Foundation board. And she's uh, really very insightful about where the economy is going, but she's investing this $17 billion on a daily basis. She's really... Uh, actively involved in the markets. And uh, she has a very good knowledge as well about uh, the energy world, because that was what she yeah. first studied when she was at Oxford. I'll say she's really quite good at it in conversation after conversation over the years. David Rubenstein, just in the last 24 hours, we've seen Lawrence Fink, I believe over in China with the World Economic Forum, not backtracking, but finessing the new ESG message. To me, Dr. Beshloff is hugely focused on the realities of hydrocarbon. What were her thoughts on climate change and on this recalibration of ESG? Well, her view is that the energy transition is underway, obviously. It's not going to be happening overnight. On ESG, she's been a big believer in ESG and is very focused on it. Um, clearly, there's pushback now. But in the end, I think it's trying to you know, put your finger in a dike trying to stop ESG from coming forward. Many people around the world are not as worried about the politics of ESG as many people in the United States might be. And as a result, you're seeing in Europe and other parts of the world a real concern about ESG and the need to be more sensitive to environmental concerns. And Afsana reflects that because she's really a global citizen in many ways. She's lived in many different places and invests all over the world. She's in Washington, as are you. It's a cutthroat job environment. What is the distinction of Rock Creek and their shop as they try to keep, find, and retain uh, outstanding women employees and managers? The firm has about 50% of its investment professionals uh, and employees are, about, are women. Uh, there aren't that many investment firms with that higher percentage of that size. It's a very large firm at this point, managing, as I mentioned, $17 billion. So it's been a bit of a struggle, I would say, to be an immigrant and to be a woman trying to build a firm like that. Um, I've known her for a while, and briefly she worked at Carlisle, I should say, and before she started mm -hmm. her own independent firm. And I, I would say that uh, uh, she's known to many people around the world for being very smart, very articulate, and, uh, and, and very conscious about the importance of ESG. Um, I should also note for those people that recognize the last name, her <clears> husband <throat> is Michael Beschloss, who's the distinguished presidential historian. Well, he's not only a distinguished presidential historian, but David, let's be clear, her husband has kept Twitter sane here in all the uproar. He's a national institution with informing the public of presidential history uh, out on uh, at Twitter. I, I, I look, David, at, at where we are right now, and I want to speak to you with your public service to the nation and the Carter administration, but almost a nation starving off the recent NBC poll for some form of middle ground or moderate politics from both parties. How, does, how does, do you perceive that the moderate voice, maybe what Agnew would call the silent America, 
How do they find their voice in this crazy presidential campaign to come, both Republican and Democrat? Well, that's a very fair and very difficult question to answer. Uh, politicians typically raise their money from the far left and the far right. It's very difficult to raise money saying, I'm going to be right down the middle. I'm going to balance the left and the right. I'm going to come up with a good compromise that everybody should be pleased with. That doesn't raise a lot of money. And as we know, in, in politics, uh, money is very important. People are spending all their time raising money in, in Washington, D.C. So it mod the moderate voice is very difficult to, to prevail. Hopefully, we'll have more moderate voices. Uh, last night, for example, I interviewed somebody that some may not say is moderate, but at the 92nd Street Y in New York, I interviewed Liz, uh, Liz Cheney. Now, uh, clearly, people on the right side of the, of the spectrum would say she's not moderate. People on the left side would say, well, she was very conservative, and now she's doing uh, good public service kinds of things. But whatever you think of Liz Cheney, finding people down the middle mm -hmm. that people on the left and the right can agree on is very, very difficult. Um, and I would say it's it's the biggest challenge that we have in our presidential campaign is how do you get a, your head above water and get some attention unless you you get something done on the far right or the far <clears throat> left, which gets the right. attention. Coming down the middle doesn't get much attention. Well, Ronald, I'm going to suggest, and I defer to you, David, but Ronald Reagan codified this process. There's just no question Ronald Reagan was the one, literally as an FDR Democrat in his childhood, came over the Republicans, grabbed the right, and moved to the center. Is that process dead? Well, Ronald Reagan was seen as being on the far right, far on, more on the right than his uh, competitor at the time, Gerald Ford. But ultimately, the far right became the center. And so today, Ronald Reagan would not be seen on the far yeah. right. Uh, Donald Trump might be seen on the far right, but not uh, Ronald Reagan. But Reagan is somebody who, um, you know, had a, a, a way to communicate that was great uh, compared to other politicians. He was called the great communicator uh, for a good reason. And even though I was, was not his political supporter, I like to quote him from time to time. And my favorite Ronald Reagan quote is, uh, the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the federal government. I'm here to help you. Well, I, I think that there's a little bit of that going on based on the zeitgeist uh, right now. David, let us bring it back to hydrants here, hydrocarbon here right. and Dr. Beschloss. What's her view on a barrel of oil out one year or a Rock Creek three years? Well, as a general rule, if you ask the CEO of an energy company where oil price is going to be in a, a month or a year, they will laugh because nobody can really know. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, given the uncertainties uh, in Russia, I suspect oil will drift up for a while. And as the Saudis seem to be trying to cut down production a bit, I suspect there'll be a further drift up. But again, I don't see $100 oil anytime in the near future. Uh, but I, I do think you'll probably see it drift up from the high 60s to the low mm -hmm. 70s in the not too distant future. David, thank you so much for the generous time today. David Rumstein of the Carlyle Group. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.